everyone. See, we're such a hearty and dedicated group. We'll talk about some core dharma this morning. This weather reminds me of Japan. The first time I went to Japan, uh, <clears throat> when I went to Sogenji, uh, it was about like this, and it was February, and I was very gung-ho, and I saw, the first thing I did is I shaved my head when I got there, <clears throat> and it was really, really cold, and there's no heat at Sogenji. You know, there may be a little, little space heater might be in your sleeping area <clears throat> for those, those who were, um, uh, kind of came from another climate, but basically the monastery was, had no heat at all. And partly that, that's cultural, uh, because Japan used to be extremely poor, very, very, very poor. So they just didn't have any money for heat. They didn't have any money for insulation. They didn't have any money for all the things that we take for granted here. So <clears throat> uh, they just felt that they, the fact that they could even eat and have protection from the wind was a great benefit. So, um, so part of it's cultural that uh, because of Japan was so poor. Part of it is also they don't have any heat because we, and certainly all of us know this, that we keep thinking, if I just get warm and comfortable and dry and well-fed and all those <clears throat> very nice things, then all will be well. I'll be happy and satisfied. But, you know, that's an endless process. Uh, you get warm and comfortable and dry and well-fed, and then you want to be entertained. And you want to get warm and comfortable and dry and well-fed and entertained. And you want to have a nice partner to be with. And you want to be warm and comfortable and dry and well-fed and have a nice partner and, and even better food. And you want to have some travel to add to that. And then you want to have, you know. So part of the, um, the, the, the intention for those kind of difficult circumstances is there is a place in us that's always free. <clears throat> There's a place in us that's always aware. There's a place in us that's always... Um, at ease, regardless of what's going on outside. So one of the ways of actually, uh, we, we all know this during Sushin, is <clears throat> during the long retreats, you know, the body can be pretty uncomfortable, but, and you can't find, um, you can spend your whole time trying to find respite and comfort there, or you can make a shift, and you shift and say, okay, my center of gravity is not the pain in my body. My center of gravity is the awareness that is larger than that. And that's always comfortable. So part of the reason they don't have heat in Japan is to encourage people to actually take a step back into something that's always comfortable, regardless of what's going on. This morning we, uh, uh, so anyhow, just being out in the Sanzen building right now and seeing all the snow and remembering going to Sanzen in at Sogenji, and there's no heat there, and you're sitting in this big room, it's about the size of this room, maybe a little bit smaller, about half the size of this room, and uh, no heat, and you're sitting there for an hour, two hours, waiting for Roshi to, to see you, and you walk down this, this uh, deck that's partly exposed to the, the elements, there's snow coming in the deck, and you're walking, walking down, bare feet, and you go into Sanzen, his breath and your breath, and, and co-mingle because it's so cold. So I was just remembering all of that as I was 
sitting on the hut today. Very, uh, very <clears throat> intimate. It makes you really feel what it's like to be alive. You have that. So this morning at the breakfast table, we were reading uh, a, a teacher that I've always appreciated, uh, Sri Nisargadatta, who's a Hindu teacher. Um, and I started reading this book. I realized this copy of the book, I wrote something in the beginning of it in 1982. Um, That's when I started reading this, 1982. It's in in Los Angeles. I've been practicing for a decade or so before that. But since 1982, I've read this whenever I was down, whenever I was discouraged, whenever I wanted some inspiration, whenever I had some insight, I'd always go back to Nishagradatta. Nishagradatta is um, he's kind of a Hindu curmudgeon, uh, and he's uh, this is filtered through a particular Western uh, Westerner, so it has a you know an understandableness by by our minds. I saw I've seen uh, videos of Nishagradatta, and he's basically just sits there and is kind of yelling and castigating people for being, you know, uh, unaware. And he's not, not, not such a nice, sweet old guy. He's really an old curmudgeon. But he's always very inspiring to me. And he's very inspiring because he has such a big view, such a big view of in our place in the universe. So I thought we'd read and comment a little bit more on what we read this morning. <clears throat> and this is a, uh, a dialogue between Nisargadatta and somebody from around the world. So what what they would do is he would give darshan and he would be sitting up in the front and people would start asking him questions. So one person would come up and they'd have a dialogue and he would ask questions and somebody recorded all these dialogues. They transcribed them. And so this is basically a transcription of a dialogue that Mr. Gardata had. And so in this book, I Am That, there are, you know, a hundred or so dialogues. Uh, between people, and they're all kinds of people. I mean, people, very, very spiritually adroit people, people who are just, you know, first encounter with anything spiritual in their entire life, every kind of person. So he's always responding to different people in different different levels. And this is one I think is so relevant to our world right now and uh, our view of the, of the new year. <clears throat> so... Um, it's absolute perfection is here and now is the title, which is a great a great title. Absolute perfection, absolute, total, complete perfection, is found right here and now. So this is a basic teaching of all the spiritual traditions. You know, all things are well, right here and right now, and so this particular truth is simply a pointing out something that that all the great sages have always pointed out: absolute perfection. That is, there's no flaw, there's no, nothing amiss, nothing is out of order, right here, right now. <clears throat> um, you could spend a decade just pondering, not pondering, but really practicing that particular truth. So when we're doing breath practice, we're sitting there and feeling the breath as the body move, the body moving as it breathes. And you ponder absolute perfection. This is the absolute perfection right here. Just this movement of the breath. Just this awareness of the eyes. Just this sound of the ears. What in the world does that mean? Absolute perfection. And as somebody mentioned earlier, 
the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose, the chant that we often do. The great way, the great way, the path of peace, the great way of absolute perfection is not separate when we're not picking and choosing. We're able to really stay present, be completely in this body, in this experience right now. And of course, our idea of the body is a different. We have lots of different ideas about the body, but to, uh, to actually experience the existence of awareness right here, right now, whole and complete. So that's the foundation of this particular talk. And the questioner says, the war is on. What is your attitude to it? Now, he may have been referring to the Vietnam War or the Korean War or World War II, or he may have been referring to the you know, Sino-Japanese War, or he may have been referring to the War of Independence of Algeria, or he may have been referring to the, the, uh, the War of Independence of the United States, or he may have been referring to the War of King Charles V of Sweden as he went and attacked Russia in the 1600s, or he may have been, you know, working with the Vikings going into England, or maybe the, the, the Indian Wars. You know, there have been wars since the beginning of time, as far as we know. You know. I've read lots and lots and lots of history, and after a while it gets a little boring, because it's just more, more history of more people in conflict, and, and the particular way that Stonewall Jackson reacted compared to Genghis Khan, you know, the particular way that, <coughs> that um, the Boer War played out versus the Mongol invaders played out. But basically, it's the same. So the question is, the war is on. What's your attitude to it? Now, whether it be the war on terrorism, whether it be the war on the banking system, whether it be the war on you know, racial inequality or racial equality, there's always some kind of conflict. So the conflict, the conflict is going on. What's your attitude to it? That's the question you're asking, which is a question all of us have. There's always conflict. I mean, you read the New York Times, it's all about conflict. One of the, uh, somebody sent me an article the other day about um, mistakes of, of uh, judgment. And the, the basic thing was we fear the wrong thing. And it basically says that <clears throat> if it's in the news, you should not be afraid of it. Because by, by definition, if it's in the news, it's a very rare event. And so if they talk about you know, the uh, terrorists that just took over forever, that means it's a very rare event. That means you shouldn't be afraid of it. But if they don't, they don't talk about um, you know, using bathtubs, uh, which are a much scarier event or swimming pools, much scarier event than terrorists. But they don't talk about that. They only talk about it by news. It's about what's unlikely to happen to you. So if they talked about things that are likely to happen to us, things that we possibly could be afraid of, walking on a slippery walk is much more likely to be a, a thing of fear. Or driving on a road that's, uh, that's covered with ice, much more likely to be a, an accident. But that won't make any news. So, conflict is on. Conflict is happening. What's our attitude to it? So, Maharaj Nisigardata says, in some place or other, in some form or other, conflict is always on. It's like I was saying. Was there ever a time there was no conflict? 
So that's an interesting thing to ponder. Is there ever a time that there was no conflict? We sometimes have a fantasy, oh, back in the, you know, <clears throat> Mayan era, back in the 1400s, back in the 1200s, back in the 1000s, we have this fantasy that sometime, maybe back in the Buddha's time, maybe back in, there was a time there was no conflict. But if you actually look at the history, total conflict. There used to be a, um, uh, there is a phrase, the, the golden era, which referred to the period before World War One. World War, and it was regarded by contemporaries in the, say, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, as a golden era. And it was only a golden era compared to the, the devastation of World War I. Before, before World War I happened, the golden era was just as filled with violence and assassinations and kidnappings and dire consequences as any other era. So this is, to me, a really fundamental spiritual question. You know, there's always conflict. We're always fighting. Where do we find freedom? There's always, 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 always problems going on. How do we find freedom? So that's the question. How do I find freedom in the midst of all this incessant, inevitable conflict? So he says, well, Maharaji, what's, what's your attitude toward this? And Mr. Gurdada says, well, why impose attitudes on me? I don't have a particular attitude toward it. You know, it's just the way things are. Why, why, think, why should I think it's good or bad? It's just the way things are. It's just the way the world was made. <clears throat> People get very dis- distressed about, and of course, you know, I'll be heartbroken when members of the Sangha pass. But the way we were made is we were born, we live, and we die. That's the way we were made. That's the way the whole world was made. That is the way things are. You know, that we, we love people, and they pass, and our heart bro- hearts are broken, and they mend, and then go on. It's the way things are. So why have an attitude about it? It's just the way things are. Why worry that, that our hearts are going to get broken? They will be broken. It's the way things are. Things will fall apart. That's the way things are. Why should we be scared of that? So Nisra Gurdada says, why, have, why, why think I'm going to have an attitude toward this? It's just the way things are. I have no attitude to call my own. And then the questioner says, well, surely somebody's responsible for all these horrible wars that are going on. Surely we can point our finger at somebody. Oh, it's that government. Oh, it's that political system. Oh, it's that poverty. Oh, it's, it's that crazy state of mind. Oh, it's, it's, it's got to be something out there that I can just point to and say, that's the cause. That's the person I can blame. We all like to do that in our own life, you know. My life is, I'm having a lot of difficulty of one sort or another. We like to be able to say, oh, there's the problem. It's right there. Ah, if I just get rid of her, if I just get rid of him, if I just get rid of that part of myself, if I just cut off my left leg, then the problem will go away. Crazy. Crazy. It doesn't happen like that. So Nisargadatta says, well, search for the culprit within. Search for the culprit within. Now, we all hear this over and over and over again. You know, Look inside. If there's conflict, look inside and see. What is the root of this conflict? What's the conflict really going on that's right here in our own hearts? What's that conflict? <clears throat> but, but it's so hard to do because it keeps, it's elusive. We can't find a thing. 
And so we want to find a thing. And so we want to find somebody. We want to find some thing. The problem is the thing. Let me get rid of the thing. Let me change the thing. But Nisargadatta says, well, surely, search for the culprit within. The culprit for the conflict within. The ideas of me and mine, they're at the root of all conflict. The ideas of me and mine are at the root of all conflict. Be free of them, and you'll be out of conflict. Be free of the ideas of me and mine. The separation of I am here and everybody is there. Of the world should work the way I think the world should work. And if it just worked the way I think the world should work, then all would be well. But the world never works the way we think it should work. You know, it just, it's just made the way it was made. When we are in accord with the way the world is, there's no conflict. So he says, search for the culprit within. And that's what we're doing basically here when we're doing spiritual practice. We're saying, well, who am I? What am I? What is this being that's so stirred up and so agitated, that's so unhappy? What is this being that is aware? What is this being that sees, that wants freedom, that wants, wants what it wants? It's hard to do. It's very hard to do. And that's why we come together as a community to support one another in this practice that's hard to do. It's hard to do because we keep looking for a thing. Keep looking for a thing. If I just had a thing, then I'd be able to do whatever I can do with a thing. But when we look inside, we can't find a thing. But we keep looking for a thing. We can't find a thing. We keep looking for a thing. We can't find a thing. We don't believe the emptiness, the spaciousness, the, the, the unfindability of our nature. We don't believe that. So we get frustrated because the world and our insights don't accord with our ideas about it. So rather than dropping our ideas about how we should be and the world should be, we get frustrated and we start rejecting things. They don't agree with my ideas. They don't agree with my ideas. And our task is really to let go of our fixed ideas about everything should agree with me. You know, my idea of freedom is the way things should be. When the world supports my idea of freedom, I'll be free. Instead of the reverse. So this guy, um, he, he kind of goes on. He misses the, misses the point, like we all tend to do. So Nisargadatta says, well, look into yourself. Look and see. You know, who's, the, who's the culprit within? But this questioner, he says, well, what if I'm out of conflict? He, he completely avoids the the admonition, look at your own mind. And he's still looking out there and says, well, what if I'm out of conflict? It won't affect the war. The war is still going on. Mr. Gadada is saying, the war is right here. And he's saying, no, the war is out there. The war is out there. I want, the, I want out there to change. I want out there to be different. But we're all like that. We always want the out there to be different. We always want out there to match my view of it. Didn't start with my birth nor will end with my death. Mr. Gurdada says, strife and struggle are part of existence. That's the way we were made. You know? That's the way we were made. I was thinking earlier <coughs> that um, from one side, the universe does not care whether we get fed or not. Absolutely, it does not care. If the universe cared, then you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of people would not have starved to death. 
You know, there would not have been 30 to 50 million people starved in China in the 50s. The great leap forward. The universe really cared whether we got fed or not. Um, the universe doesn't particularly care. You know, there's there's possibly a uh, hundred million habitable stars in our galaxy alone, habitable planets in our galaxy alone. Probably a hundred million habitable planets in our galaxy, the solar, our Milky Way galaxy. And the universe doesn't really care. But we care. Each of us individually cares very, very, very much. Each of us individually wants to be fed. Each of us individually wants to have heat. Each of us individually wants to live a life of satisfaction. Each of us individually wants to, to um, survive. So Mr. Gradata says, strife and struggle are part of existence. It's just the way we're made. We were made. The universe doesn't care whether we get fed. We get to care whether we get fed. We're going to do what we need to do to get fed. That's the way we were made. But why don't you inquire who's responsible for existence itself? Why don't you, again, turn the mind in to see, you know, where is this, what's the source of I, me, and my? What's the source of this struggle? What's the source of this endless unfolding? What's the source of this mind that sees and discriminates? Don't just say, I'm no longer going to discriminate. I'm not going to say good and, I'm not going to turn my mind to good and bad and judging right and wrong. But look even deeper than that. Where does that come from? What is it? It gives rise to that impulse. Question says, why do you say existence and conflict are inseparable? Can't there be existence without strife? I don't need to fight others to be myself. There's several different levels of things here. Can there be no existence without strife? Why do you say existence and conflict are inseparable? I need not fight others to be myself. Well, of course, to be ourself is to be our own little bundle of stuff. You know? And part of that bundle is fighting others. Part of the little bundle of ourself is I want to get fed, and there may not be enough resources to go around. And how do I share, think what's appropriate? How do I take care of the, the realm that I know? So Mr. Gradata says, you fight others all the time for your survival as a separate body-mind, particular name and form. Now that's interesting. We fight others all the time to be separate. I want to look separate. I want to look special. I want to get certain special attention. I want people to regard me in a certain way. You know, I'm different than you. And of course, on one level, that is the way things, that's the way we're made. We have to have appropriate separation in that way. But he's, Nurse Gardata keeps pointing, what is the fundamental truth? The fundamental truth is things are not two. The fundamental truth is there is complete interpenetration with all things. That my awareness and the objects of awareness arise simultaneously. 
completely interpenetrated. That awareness of me and awareness of you, same awareness, completely interpenetrated. So when we're looking at the level of who am I? What is this thing I call I? What is this this, uh, fundamental truth? There is no separation. When there is no separation, there can be no struggle. When there is no no struggle, everything is at peace, whole and complete, lacking nothing, as all the great sutras say. When I come back to my separate self, I want to survive, I want to be seen, I want to succeed, I want to be fed. There is separation. There is struggle. So how do we resolve these two? Vishagradhara continues, you fight others all the time for your survival as a separate body-mind, particular name and form. To live, you must destroy. From the moment you were conceived, you started a war with your environment, a merciless war of mutual extermination until death sets you free. It's kind of scary. A mutual war of mutual, a merciless war of mutual extermination. We're constantly just taking things in, taking things in, chewing them up, you know, making them disappear, consuming, consuming, consuming. And then we have an idea, oh, I'm not going to consume anything. I'm not going to consume air or water or food, or I'm not going to consume ideas, or I'm not going to consume attention. And that's crazy. You can't do that. We're constantly consuming. What does consuming mean? I just did a, a retreat in the dark for several days, and it's very interesting when you're eating, you know, out of blackness, out of complete not knowing, out of complete not seeing anything, there's this sensation in your hands, there's a sensation, <clears throat> sensation comes up and becomes a sensation in your mouth, becomes flavor and taste, it's chewed, masticated, and then it disappears, and it goes back into the blackness. And so it's very interesting to watch, to be sitting in the complete dark, and just have things arise out of the darkness, be consumed, and disappear completely into the darkness. And just watch this flow of life energy coming from nowhere, being experienced and going to nowhere. And that experiencing is consu- it's consuming in a way. It takes what was something, turns it into nothing. And our whole life, we're just doing that all the time. Things come to us, we experience them, we process them, and they disappear. We experience them, and they process them, and they disappear. What's left for breakfast this morning? What's left? You know, maybe a, a little bit of food in our, in our gut, a few memories. But basically, it's gone. It's gone. Last week is gone. Last year is gone. We fight others all the time for our survival. We fight others all the time with our memory, with our hopes, with our dreams, our fixed views of things. So, spiritual practice is about, first, we accept. The world is kind of a little crazy. We're a little crazy. Secondly, we come into the direct experience of being in this moment. We turn our attention directly to awareness of awareness itself. We turn our attention to the, the, the broad awareness that is very inclusive. It includes everything. It is completely non-exclusive. That is the essence of loving-kindness, the essence of acceptance, the essence of <clears throat> embracing. 
And we do that from the inside and the outside, the essence of embracing. And then, that's on the absolute side, and then we come back to our particular personality, our particular, what we were born with, our particular struggle, our particular strengths, our particular aspirations. And we think, how can I use this particular constellation of DNA, this particular constellation of, of uh, intellectual and emotional factors? How can I use this particular constellation as skillfully as possible? How can I use this particular constellation in a way that does not deny the absolute interpenetration of all things, in a way that, that is uh, in accord with the deepest truths of life? How do I use this particular constellation in a way that is loving and kind, that is uh, of benefit? Because from the perspective of self, there is benefit. There is benefit and there's not benefit. From the perspective of the great mystery, everything has a oneness to it. Everything is the same. So from the perspective of this particular individual life, which is busy struggling and has all of its difficulties and all of its challenges, how can I use that? How can I turn these particular challenges I have and use them in the largest, wisest, deepest way possible? Back to the Sugardata here. A merciless war of mutual extermination until death sets you free. Until death sets you free. And in a way, he's looking at things just the reverse of what we normally look at things. We look at things as life is freedom and death is complete extinction. And he's saying, no, no, death is complete freedom and life is just complete struggle. Complete struggle, complete effort. If it's possible, there is an awareness that is larger than life. That birth and death are both part of the same continuum of awareness. Questioner, I'm asking about the immediate, the transitory, the appearance. Here's a picture of a child killed by soldiers. It's a fact, staring at you. You cannot deny it. Now, who's responsible for the death of the child? So, <clears throat> Nishagardata keeps saying there is an absolute truth which each of us can touch. There's an absolute place of spaciousness and freedom, an absolute place of awareness and loving kindness and inclusivity, an absolute place of non-rejection, an absolute place of wholehearted engagement. And that's where freedom is found. And this particular questioner keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. I want to find freedom by changing the things I don't like in the world to the things I do like in the world. I want to find freedom by, by manipulating the world so that it, I, it makes it comfortable for me. He says, I'm asking about the immediate, the transitory, the appearance. There's a picture of a child killed by soldiers, a fact. Who's responsible for the death of the child? Who's responsible? Again, wanting to point the finger and saying, okay, if we figure out who's responsible, we'll change that person. We'll, we'll kill them. And then because we killed them, they won't kill the child. But Nishigardata says, well, nobody's responsible and everybody's responsible. How can it be other than that? I mean, we're 
we're talking about the state of oneness. We're talking about the absolute, complete interpenetration of all things. We're talking about non-separation between, you know, victim and victimizer. We're talking about the the unity of awareness and the objects of awareness. Nobody and everybody. The world is what it contains, and everything affects all others. Everything affects all others. Chaos theory. Uh, my, my limited understanding of it is that, that each thing that happens, the classic example is a butterfly in South America, has ripples of causation, ripples of effects that, that affect one way or another everything in the world. Affect everything in the world. Everything in the world affects everything else in the world. Everything in the world is completely interpenetrated. And so how we think affects everybody around us. How everybody around us thinks affects us. They're not two different things. There's not a self and others, but it's one mutual, interpenetrated, intertwined field, a unified field of consciousness, in which all the things that happen, all the things that are, that are extant, are affected, are caught by, are interpenetrated by everything that goes on. Well, if that's the case, What's, what's our individual personal responsibility? So on one hand, we have the absolute truth, the interpenetration of all things. On the other hand, we have our particular personal struggle, our particular personal DNA complex. And how do we learn to function with these two truths in mind? The world is what it contains. We all kill the child. We all die with it. Every event has innumerable causes and produces numberless, numberless effects. It's useless to keep accounts. Nothing is traceable, Mr. Gardata says. So if we look at our life, we look at this particular life right here, right now, we look at us all sitting here in this, this moment, uh, me going on and on and on, I just noticed. It is the culmination of everything that's gone on before us. In order to be here right at this moment, we had to have all the meals that we have already eaten in our life. In order to be here right here at this moment, we had to have done all the travels that we had, we had, we have made. There is no shortcut to being right here. We had to follow the path that each of us followed, every single part. And of course, just the meals alone, each of those meals required hundreds of people to grow the food, to process the food, to purchase the food, to cook the food, to serve the food as well as us. So for us to be here right now, we try to say, well, okay, what caused me to be here right now? Well, one hand, I woke up this morning and said, yeah, it's a good idea, I'll go to the monastery. Or a good idea, I'll come to the Zendo. That's one very superficial way. The, the deeper look is the whole universe. Everything that's ever happened is part of the causation of us being here. This is not just a random event. This is a culmination of all the influences in our life and our life is the culmination of all the influences of all the other people's lives. So <clears throat> every event has innumerable causes and produces numberless effects. And so when we start trying to think, who is responsible? What's the, what's the you know, that's, that's the guilty one. That's the guilty one. That's the guilty part. Let's get rid of it. It's a crazy way of thinking. It's a very, very immature way of thinking, which unfortunately is the nature of our culture at this point. Let's find what's responsible. Let's excise it. Let's put it in prison. Let's make it go away. And then it won't ever happen again. 
And that state of mind itself is part of what precipitates the, the endless cycle of samsara, the endless cycle of suffering. It's useless to keep accounts. Nothing is traceable. It's useless to keep accounts. Nothing is traceable. So we have this particular moment, this morning right here. We're all experiencing whatever we're experiencing right now. Take a deep breath. We do our chant. We'll go to lunch. And the next thing will come. And so practice is about nothing is traceable. So let's keep paying attention to what's right here, what's right here, what's right here, what's right here, what's right here. Let's let the mind go. Whatever happened this morning is not so important. What's right here? Let's respond effectively right here. Let's pay attention right here. As I told a number of you in as a, a little side in Sanzen, the most important thing is not is to pay attention to every single step you make. Don't slip. So by paying attention to every single step you make and you're not slipping in the ice or the snow, then that is a foundation of a well-lived life on many different levels. So please, let's kind of appreciate this moment, appreciate this little brief chant, a few bows, and let's appreciate lunch, moment after moment.